be You're real cooking good. Cooking a pork loin. Yeah, I'm cooking a pork loin right now, and uh, it's like a mojo sauce. It's real simple. It's olive oil, orange juice, lime juice, different herbs and spices and stuff like that. Um, so that's an interesting thing to have for this season. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of normal. Hey, what's that? What's what? What what is that? Oh, that that ad? That's yeah, it's just like a stupid YouTube ad or something. I don't I don't know. Turn it off, dude. Turn it off. What? Turn it off. What? Turn it off. Ah! Turn ah! it off. Ah! <laughs> Welcome everybody to the Watch If You Dare podcast. This is our Halloween episode. Hell yeah. Our first Halloween episode because we technically started in November of last year. Oh uh, yeah, so this is our final episode for Season of Spoop. TM, TM, TM. And we got up a good one. A real good one. Probably the best one. Absolutely. Also, too, in keeping with the season, right on my window, I've been staring at it for the last hour or so. There's a gigantic yellow jacket just sitting on the screen, just staring at me. He's waiting for you, boy. So, yeah, I got I got an audience besides my two cats. Yeah, today is also the first day that it has actually gotten cold up here. And I say cold, I mean, like, it's not in the 90s. Oh, dude, I put on my heat today for, like, the first time ever. It was great. It was, like, that cold. Well, you're in the desolate wastelands of nothing to block the cold air Kansas so <laughs> I'm in Ed Gein country <laughs> although that, that was Wisconsin I think eh, same difference right <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Midwest is all just Ed Gein country it's just cows and corn and serial killers and the only thing that's different is the accent well ever since watching Mindhunter like all those scenes took place in the Midwest specifically Kansas there are like two or three of those places that I've definitely driven through <laughs> multiple times uh all right, before we get started with the movie, which at this point I bet y'all can probably guess what it is if you haven't read the title already, uh, what have you gotten into lately that is horror-related? So I've been deep diving into comic books lately. I finished Bone Parish. I'm sure you did too. Top-notch. Great ending. It, it, it did that horror trope of leaving it just open-ended enough that if Colin Bunn ever wanted to like do a follow-up or something, he could. Yeah. But at the same time, if it wanted to just end like that and be on a its own it could totally do that as well which i think the best horror movies have endings like that where they can either continue on or it'd be fine with just that standalone thing but uh i won't talk too much into it because like i said i highly recommend this series as a whole and you can pretty soon get it all in trade since the 12th issue came out so check that out especially if you have any ties to new orleans or are from there like i know a good chunk of our audience our friends and family uh either live there or been there multiple times and it was a great series and Cullen Bunn is like the horror master when it comes to comic books. Otherwise, there's a new series that's popped up at Dark Horse and it's called Everything and I read the first issue of Everything. Take the idea of like a small town, I think it's in Michigan and there's just this gigantic mega department store that opens like a super Walmart or something like that but it's like multiple floors and there are all kinds of different departments for appliances and clothes 
clothes and things like that. And as this happened, all these weird and unexplained things have started happening around the town, like psychic disturbances and things like that. And you kind of follow, at least in the first issue, it kind of follows like two or three of the different citizens, what they see and how they interact around this town. And even in the first issue, there's like weird shit that happens that I am very curious to see where this goes. And we'll we'll touch on this when we go into the movie, but it, it kind of plays into that trope that I really enjoy with horror of a small town having a dark secret, um, like, you know, mundane towns that you drive through having some sinister, eldritch abomination, like, just around the corner. So, yeah, I'm caught it now. It's one of three things. Either the mega Walmart is a gateway to hell, it is built on top of an Indian burial ground, or it was purposely built as some kind of eldritch configuration. It's gonna be a portal to hell, but they made it purposely to be that. Well, and one of the characters too is the store manager. She's like this perfect Stepford Wives character, yeah. like blonde hair, blue eyes, but, and this is all in the first issue, so it's not really a spoiler, but at one scene, she's walking around the town late at night, and like, one of her eyes is glowing green, so so also okay. could be sort of like Halloween 3 where, and we'll get into that, but you know, artificial horror is not out of the realm of possibility yeah. either. So I am very curious to see where everything goes. First issue was impressive. I enjoyed the artwork. Um, it is written by Christopher Cantwell, which I don't really know this author. So it's kind of exciting to dive into a new author that has a promising new title. And so that was at a dark horse. I'd mentioned Bone Parish, which was Boom. Well, Boom is now putting out another series where I only read the first issue, but it was a very impressive issue. And it is called Something thing is killing the children <laughs> okay yeah well, great title and this is written by james tinian the fourth i mean he has been all over the place like i think writing lately for dc and after tom king leaves batman he's taking over batman next year he's kind of like cullen bunn he leans a little more towards the horror because i think like he wrote justice league dark for a while He's written other horror titles, I think, under Boom. So this is his newest one. And then I think even in recent interviews, he was talking about how in Batman, he wants to explore more of the horror aspects of Batman and like the gothic nature of it. So I hope he writes some solid Scarecrow stories because Scarecrow is my boy. Yeah. He's my favorite. But yeah, something is killing the children is kind of what you would expect it to be. It's the story of a monster hunter and which monsters are real. And in this one, it's another small town. The children are kind of going missing one by one the police aren't really doing much about it or they don't really know what the hell is going on and this monster hunter kind of comes into town and one of the kids whose friends like went missing and one of them showed up dead and everyone in the town kind of thinks this kid did it even though he was the one who actually saw the monster but no one believes him and so this monster hunter is teaming up with this kid now to track it down once again, I liked the artwork. I dug the style. It was good, spooky fun. Check out James Tinian's other stuff, especially his work on Batman when that comes around. And then kind of one of the most exciting new titles that I've been reading is Coffin Bound from Image Comics. And I think the first issue has gone to like multiple printings now. And I was lucky enough to get my hands on the first print. But Coffin Bound, it's hard to describe what it is. It's kind of like, imagine like Neil Gaiman, David Lynch, Mad Max, and Quentin Tarantino kind of all rolled into one. It's basically the story of like this woman who's being hunted by a killer and she's kind of fed up with the world and so she's literally making this fucked up journey uh, around the world to literally 
burn away all traces of who she was, like of her past and as a person. Like she wants to literally leave nothing behind. And it's just very surreal, very surreal action horror. It kind of takes place sort of in like a post-apocalyptic vision of our world, but it's not really our world. And characters are more like personifications of themes and concepts rather than people, if that makes any sense. Kind of like Sandman. It's hard to describe, but it's awesome. Like, I've read the first two issues now, and it's written by Dan Waters, who actually has done a little bit of work for uh, the Sandman universe. He wrote some Lucifer. The artwork is fantastic. The writing has been fantastic. I'm really curious to see where this goes. This seems like a great title to jump on once East of West wraps up, because this kind of also has an East of West vibe, and I know that that's on its last story arc. So that's kind of all I got for comic books. I also started Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I've had it for a while, and I finally started it. It has a little bit of horror vibe right off the bat the first section of the game takes place like during day of the dead and it has to do with mayan apocalypse and things like that and i've only gotten a couple hours in so i'll let y'all know how it is as i keep going but so far some pretty solid horror vibes in that game and that's all i got okay So, before I talk about what I have gotten into lately, one interesting blurb of news that I saw first thing this morning, which this will be out by the time that this episode drops. So, there is a movie called Phase 4, which is fucking bonkers. Um, It was made by Saul Bass, who is mostly known as a legendary poster designer and, like, title sequence designer. He made a movie that is, what if giant ants suddenly became, like, hyper-intense? Intelligent and begin to, like, wage war on humanity. I'm looking at an old theatrical release poster from 1970s. <laughs> this looks great. Yeah. So this is a movie where the original ending was so batshit that the studio was like, nah, we can't do this. So they trimmed the ending, put a very stock ending on it, and the original ending has supposedly been lost this whole time, but apparently it has been rediscovered and restored, and it is now going to be available directly through like Apple's digital platform so that is something I'm very interested in checking out because I have always heard of the crazy batshit ending for this movie and you can see like some bootleg really sketchy versions of it on YouTube but to see the whole thing restored sounds kind of interesting as much as you know I try to save animal attack movies for Valentine's Day because that's a tradition that Heather and I have I kind of want to dig into this one pretty soon. So, there's that. I like the tagline for it. The tagline for the movie is, the day the earth was turned into a cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The movie is fucking bonkers. So, as far as what I've actually gotten into, Heather and I have gone full season of Spoop. So, it it is that time we have been chugging through some movies. So, just quick barrage of things that we have watched, things that I have watched in the last few days, which Obviously, we're recording this episode kind of early. We have watched The Brood, excellent. Demon Knight, still super fun. I Saw the Devil, fucking brutal. Excision, real uncomfortable. Shaun of the Dead, still holds up and is funny and charming. Scream, still works, but that's a movie that every time I go back to it, I always remember, oh yeah, that's all there is to this movie. And I'm, I'm dying here, man. <laughs> fucking dying, man. Oh man, I think you went too deep. Oh, um, yeah, he, <laughs> he's fucking great, that movie. So we watched all those together, and then some stuff that I watched on my own. I watched Asylum, uh, which is an anthology 
movie from Amicus that's super fun. It's this guy going to an insane asylum and he's kind of going through each of the patients and seeing their stories. So there's some fun shit there. I rewatched Pumpkinhead, which talk about a missed opportunity for that franchise to be good because the sequels to that movie are bad. And that's one that I would love to have somebody come back in and kind of do a soft reboot of. The creature in that movie is so fucking good. And as far as like a practical effect dude in a suit, it looks so good. Is the first movie, does that hold up? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a basic plot. I mean, it's Lance Hendrickson's kid is accidentally killed by some teenagers right at the beginning. And so he calls up the spirit of vengeance, aka Pumpkinhead, to like go out after him. Which is like an even more eldritch uh, xenomorph, basically. Basically, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the design work and everything and, that, and the creature holds up so fucking well. It's Stan Winston. I mean, this was one of the movies that he directed, and he knows how to light and how to frame the creatures that he's designing and making, so it's super solid in that standpoint. I also watched for the first time Basket Case 2 and 3, and I suddenly realized the charm of Basket Case 1 to me has nothing to do with Belial, the like awful little creature, because that's pretty much all 2 and 3 is. It's just, hey, look at all these other creature designs that we made. 2 was kind of dull, if I'm being honest, but 3 picks up immediately where 2 leaves off, and 3 does go full fucking bonkers by the end. So three is called the progeny and at the end of two Belial finds basically the female Belial and they literally have sex and that's how the like third movie opens is just these two awful like blob mutants banging and (laughs) the like female Belial gives birth in part three and it's just a bunch of fucking raw chickens with faces you know it's just like these awful little blobs and the scene where she's given birth and they just keep pulling them out and it's just like oh here it is oh god it's a it's a blob thing oh yay oh wait shit there's another one and it just keeps going (laughs) one of the other mutants is filming it and he's just like oh god seven straight from heaven and it just it gets ridiculous i didn't know that there were sequels to basket case in the first place yeah and i have i have never actually seen either of the sequels but again i realized that the charm of the first movie to me is more seeing New York at the time, that like real dirty, dangerous New York that doesn't really exist anymore. That's definitely the charm of the first movie for sure. The other movie that I watched is from the American Scream Project that Arrow does. It's like a box set of three regional US based horror movies. And so they're doing like movies from different states that either didn't get any kind of attention or or were kind of lost for some time. But there's a movie in this second volume called The Child, which was very interesting. I wouldn't necessarily say it's good, but it's very interesting because it has some hardcore Fulci vibes, but like at the same exact time that Fulci would have been putting stuff out here, it's basically this woman goes to this real in the middle of nowhere country estate to like care for the little girl but the little girl is calling up these zombies to kind of do her bidding and take people out 
the zombies look really interesting and really different than what you're used to seeing. The gore in it is kind of bananas. And the camera work in it especially is really interesting. Because there's just fog everywhere and the lighting is really odd. So that one was definitely worth watching out of that box set for sure. So those are all the movies that I've checked out in the last couple days. Heather and I also watched the next few episodes of What We Do in the Shadows, which was hilarious. And by the time that this episode comes out, the second season of Hulu's Castle Rock, the Stephen King show, should be started as well. So anybody that is interested in that should definitely check out season one. And the second season would be starting by the time that this episode drops. Last thing I want to mention, um, I mentioned that I read The Harrowers, which was a Clive Barker comic series from the 90s that was very 90s. But the whole idea was just these people going into hell to retrieve souls. So I read that and I read like some of the main Hellraiser series. I didn't realize that what I was reading was like super old Hellraiser. It was all issues from back in the 90s that had been reprinted in a modern volume. And so I was thinking that it was all like relatively new stuff. That stuff was all from the 90s. So boom comics to go back to Boom Comics, they have a series that started in 2010 that is a direct picks up after movie two Hellraiser story. So this story starts off with Kirsty leading a group of harrowers and they are going around the world and retrieving all of the other gateway devices like the puzzle box that Lamarchand, the French toy maker guy, made. One's a little carousel toy, another one's a music box. But they're basically going around and finding these objects and destroying them to like close all the gateways. Lots of stuff happens, but at the end of the day, where the story ultimately is going is that Pinhead kind of makes a deal with Kirsty that he wants to essentially have another shot at salvation. So he switches places with her and he becomes human again, which we kind of see in the second movie. Like you see his origins and everything and learn his backstory. He becomes a human again, but now in modern times. And then she becomes comes the new pinhead. So it's her, like, basically reworking hell in her own design and image while he is on the surface also trying to, like, finish some of the work that she was doing. So it's very interesting because it directly picks up the story from the movies, and Clive Barker was involved in writing these. It's super fucking gory. Insanely gory. Way more so than the movies ever were, or way more so than they could ever get away with in the movies. Like, they're in the fucking suit in the subway system in New York and like a homeless kid grabs the puzzle box and Kirstie's chasing him and the kid accidentally activates the box and chains shoot out of it in every direction and these are like massive busting through the walls of the subway's kind of chains and right. a subway car drives through the chains and they just slice the entire car apart and you see everybody inside just getting blasted to ribbons and the whole thing crashes and explodes and people are constantly just getting ripped in half by chains and hooks like it is fucking ridiculous but it's so good it's an interesting thing to 
to see because like a lot of the adaptations of like horror franchises they do their best to one up the movies yeah at least in the violence and gore factor i'm not at all surprised that that the comic is more gory than the movies are yeah it's fucking intense but the artwork in it is really really good i like how they draw the actual dialogue bubbles to be kind of they have like different characteristics depending on the character talking they're colored differently but yeah it's it's real good and it does a good job of directly tying in everything from the first two movies so i'm through the first two and a half trades so that's like the first maybe 15 issues but it's it's real good there were five trades in that storyline ultimately and then they went back and reprinted all the issues from that epic anthology which is what i mentioned earlier like i said i was reading those trades thinking like oh that's the modern stuff no they just reprinted that stuff as volume six volume seven of the trades and then it goes on to some different stories from there but yeah this main story is only like five trades worth so it's roughly 25 issues definitely worth checking out if you can get your hands on it it was really really good especially if you're a fan of the first two hellraiser movies so that's all i got as far as stuff that i have done lately We don't have any plugs, so again, you don't have to hear us talk about uh, PodCoin or anything like that. Frowny face. We also don't really have an icebreaker, so one thing that I kind of fucking love is how bananas uh, Halloween 3 is, and it's definitely something that like lots of people have caught on to as time has gone on. So one thing that kind of came up specifically at a convention a few years ago so, Tommy Lee Wallace, the director of this movie, was once asked at a convention to explain the connection between Stonehenge, Ireland, robots, and laser beams that both melt flesh and produce and conjure bugs and snakes from the human body. And Wallace's entire response was just, it's magic, man. <laughs> So, on that note... What a good answer. (laughs) Yeah, I did a little bit of research, just as context, before we start talking about this actual movie. So, Halloween, as a thing, has roots in ancient Gaelic folklore. Right. Halloween, originally called Samhain, or Samhain, depending on who's pronouncing it, and I don't know which is the correct pronunciation. I I hear Samhain more, but that might be more of a modern interpretation or modern pronunciation of what it's supposed to be. Either that or Gaelic is fucking weird to pronounce and people just don't realize that it's pronounced differently. I don't know, because I hear both. Either way, just on a surface level, which this topic gets real deep and it's real interesting if y'all want to just get on Wikipedia and look at it. I've done it before it there's a lot to it so in a nutshell it's the gaelic celebration at the end of the fall harvest season right that marks the beginning of winter so unlike its calendar opposite beltane which was a festival in the summer which is kind of for the living samhain is a liminal time when the veil separating the spirit world and the living world is thinnest which allows the souls of the dead and other spirits to then cross over samhain is celebrated by people making food and crop offerings to spirits, people dressing up and going door to door for food, and the final harvest of crops and slaughtering of livestock for the winter. Now, where the whole sacrificing of children specifically links the two tales, (laughs) one is where the villagers of Nemed offered two-thirds of their corn, milk, 
and children, which that's one of those things is not like the other. One of those <laughs> things is dead kids. Two thirds is also a really big number at the end of the day. So they offered two thirds of their corn, milk, and children to these five monsters known as Fomorians. This sounds like a gross exaggeration that, like, somewhere in history got turned into a myth, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That, like, every year you're supposed to sacrifice two thirds of your yeah. kids. So that's kind of one thing. Gay Gaelic folklore was all passed down via oral tradition, and it wasn't really until the Christian monks started moving into the area that they began actually writing down these stories, and a lot of them were slightly Christianized in the process. But so much of this was just handed down person to person over the years, so of course everything's been kind of reinterpreted and everything else. I know with, especially with Christianity, it was a double-edged sword when they were writing about these sort of festivals because on one hand it was re- recording this and it was recorded history and it's in some cases it's the only recorded history we have of some of these practices but then on the other it's through a Christian lens so yeah they might very well like make up bullshit because they're trying to show that oh these pagan traditions are ungodly blah 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 yeah they sacrifice their kids every year which might not have been actually the truth yeah I went to Catholic high school and Catholic grammar school and even just the exposure there I came to understand that that, especially with Catholics, uh, when they were recording history, it was very biased. It was very much like the winner tells the story, basically. Yeah, totally. So, these two specific stories, which it seems like every village in the entirety of, like, the Gaelic culture had their own kind of spin on things or their own story, but while I was doing some research, these were the only two instances of, like, kid sacrifice that I could find. So, yeah, there's the village of Nemed. They offer two-thirds of their children and corn and milk to these monsters. And the monsters, again, are, like, personifications of nature kind of things. It's chaos, darkness, death, blight, and drought. So they're doing it to, like, appease nature and appease, like, the primal earth, right? Man, forget Number of the Beast, write more metal songs about these five. Yeah, Fomorians. The second tale, specifically, was also adapted by the Gaelic oral tradition and Christian monks. So there's two different sources there, specifically. There's the monk version, and then there's the actual, like, original version that was written down. These both tell of an ancient god named Krom Krok, and people used to sacrifice a firstborn child at the altar of this weird demigod in a village, or a place at least, called Mog Slicht, which I know I'm butchering these pronunciations, but Gaelic is Gaelic. And later, like at some point in time, King Tigernmus... Tigernmus, I don't know. Um, and it looks like <laughs> you're doing. It looks great. like Tiger Mouse. Him and three quarters of his people purportedly died during this ritual. One Samhain, so the place was haunted forever. And also, too, kind of going back to that demigod, there was a famous warrior that kind of worshipped this demigod, and he was kind of one of those warriors that was more almost like a sellsword, and he wandered the lands. But he became known only as Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm an asshole. (laughs) Uh, So all of that said, just keep that in mind as we're getting into this movie because shit gets weird and everybody's like, I don't know how these things connect. So there you go. That's how things connect. We'll circle back around. And a more serious note, though, when I have like kind of done my own just reading of Samhain in general, just kind of out of curiosity, a lot of the stuff that like uh, what people dressed up as, even the lanterns they had and like just the designs they made with uh, wood 
carvings and all that kind of stuff. It made me realize just how many horror movies, and I mean, specifically, I, I think of even the uh, cultists and kill list, yeah. what a lot of these movies that deal with cults, they've definitely done their research and kind of mirror a lot of these kind of Sam Hain celebration, at least the iconography of it. Because I highly doubt that like all these Sam Hain festivals were violent. I'm sure that they were very much like Day of the Dead, where they were celebrations and feasting and things like that. And less like, let's just sacrifice these group of people to achieve immortality. Kind of like in the ritual and then uh, with Kill List with all the people wearing the masks and him wearing the crown. I, I don't see historically many of these festivals being that dark. I'm sure they were at some points. Yeah, there's bound to be like one crazy village elder who was like, you know what we need to do? We need to kill the children. That will make it stop raining so much. Yeah, not to say that people aren't violent. I mean, they definitely are and they probably did plenty of fucked up shit but it is interesting to see how much the horror genre in general takes from this historical view of things. Yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started talking about 1982's fucking masterpiece, Fight Me, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. You don't really know much about Halloween. Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red. Halloween, the children. You have to know anything about this, Cochran? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Trick or treat, trick or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Hey! Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory. I want a mask! Can I have a mask? Uh, just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Cockers? Why? Do I need a reason? I've got nothing here to indicate there was ever a body at all. Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me! They're going to kill us. All of us. Stop it! The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Stop it! Season of the Witch, the night no one comes home. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Stop happy, it. happy Halloween. <laughs> Silver Shamrock. Best fucking jingle ever. This movie, I've got to say, and I am 100% serious, out of the 20-something movies we have done since we started this podcast, this has been my favorite by far. This was my favorite movie we've done so far. So here's the question then. Have you actually seen any of the other Michael Myers-related Halloween movies from the 
franchise. Back in high school, I watched Halloween 1 and 2, um, and I've seen bits and pieces of like Halloween 4 and those movies, so I very much have the context of the rest of the franchise. And like, okay, from a critical standpoint, yes, the original Halloween historically is a better movie and it's way more important to cinema history than Halloween 3. However, Halloween 3 is my now personal favorite. I like it more than the original <laughs> Halloween. And I know some people might shit a brick when they hear that, but I had more fun with this movie. So I won't disagree with you on some of that. I will say, and the reason why I asked you, had you seen the other movies, is you said you saw one and two when you were in high school. So that was like half of your life ago. So you were probably able to go into this one and watching it without any of that context and just watch it for what it is, right? Right. You know, everybody says it at this point. I'm not saying anything new, but if they had just called this movie Season of the Witch when it came out, instead of attaching it directly to the Halloween franchise, this movie would have done better, hands down. Yeah, at the time, I would 100% agree with you on that. Yeah, and I honestly don't think it's a bad movie at all. And the people who, like, explicitly just say it's bad are fucking wrong like i'll i'll say it right now they're fucking wrong this movie's bananas you know it it is insane the story is crazy and weird but it is a very well-made movie yeah it's not insane in the same way as like house insane yeah it is it goes to some weird places and i mean obviously yeah the first halloween is a stone cold masterpiece period but I would say that Halloween 3 is as good, if not better, than literally any of the other Halloween sequels. 4 and maybe 2 are the ones that come closest otherwise, but 3 is legit good. And you can't fucking deny, like, you know, how good the movie is in hindsight. Um, So here's a review that I saw of this fucking movie. And I'm not even going to say, like, who wrote this review, because whatever, they're fucking wrong. So, quote, Do I really need to say anything else than I hate this terrible movie? Everything that was great about one and good about two has been removed. It looks and feels cheap and tacky. The first one is so slick, well-made, and well-filmed. This one looks like a cheap 80s B-horror movie. The acting is wooden. You can forgive those elements in a horror film if it has a unique factor, something striking. But no, they've even taken Michael Myers out. Result? This isn't Halloween. The plot is thinner than a gnat's shoelace, and it just is a truly sad watch. Every sequel and prequel was superior. Even the dreaded Halloween 4 is worlds ahead. It makes no sense. It's stupid. Awful movie. 2 out of 10. Okay? (laughs) So, everything about that review is fucking wrong. I'm just gonna say it right now. You know why? Because Dean Cundey fucking shot this movie, just like he did on the first one, and it looks really good. The acting is not any better or worse than any of the other fucking movies. Yeah, I would agree with you there. No shit Michael Myers isn't in it. We'll talk about why, but, you know, yeah, this has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Again, look at this movie without that context. And as far as plot goes, I would say this movie has way more fucking plot than probably any of the Halloween movies at the end of the day, the Michael Myers ones at least. Like, as far as plot goes, this movie is fucking bananas as far as plot is concerned. Yeah, so 
So to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, because I'm probably going to spend the rest of this podcast gushing, there are a lot of moments in the plot where I was saying like, well, what about this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Why yeah. don't they just do that? What about this? But as far as having a plot, there is more going on in this plot oh, for sure. Oh, and it is very creative. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Like where the plot is thin in aspects, it makes up for it in creativity, I will say. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I agree with you. I, I do think that that is a great statement that if this movie just came out titled Season of the Witch, then have the Halloween 3 in front of it, it probably would have done a much better. But in retrospect, and again, a lot of this movie is all about revisiting in retrospect. I love that it, it is part of the Halloween franchise. I love that it has that Halloween 3 in the front of it because it, no other slasher franchise has that one movie that has absolutely nothing to do with the slasher and is a standalone movie. Like, you could watch this movie before any other Halloween movie and be totally fine because it stands alone. Yeah, It would be kind of like if Child's Play 4 was just about computer games instead. Yeah. And that's the thing though. The reason why I am totally okay with it where it fits in the franchise is because Halloween 2 has a great ending to the Michael Myers story. Yeah. It kind of puts that exclamation point at the end and this is kind of a nice break before they dive right back more into Michael Myers. And this movie, the one thing it shares with the rest of the franchise is how much it is about Halloween or at least Halloween as part of the fiber of this movie. Even though it is like more kind of almost science fiction or rather than slasher or supernatural, it still feels so Halloween. The plot itself is all about Halloween masks. And so I think that it totally deserves to be among the franchise. I'm glad that in recent years and in more modern uh, revisiting that people realize that this movie is fantastic. Because I mean, hell, even back in college, you and I talked about this movie and how it actually is a great movie. So it's been having a kind of reevaluation for probably over a decade now. Yeah. So on that note, as far as like background of the movie is concerned... So the original idea for the Halloween series was for it to be an anthology. So every movie every year was going to be a new story told on Halloween. So Halloween 1 was supposed to be it. And they were going to come back and do a completely different movie next. But because of the success of the first one, the studio and the producers kind of pressured Carpenter into revisiting Michael Myers. So now we have Halloween 2, which Carpenter wrote. He didn't direct it, but Carpenter and Deborah Hill put that one together. Carpenter was not ultimately happy with 2. And the whole kind of concession was, okay, well, now we can do a third one that is back to the whole idea of an anthology, Right? Because like you said, they kind of put a button on Michael Myers' story at the end of 2. So they decide to do the third one, do it as an anthology, completely different story, disconnected. Joe Dante was originally signed on to direct. Joe Dante, obviously, of like The Howling and Piranha, um, not quite yet Gremlins fame, but he was originally supposed to direct it. And he and Carpenter specifically sought out Nigel Neal, who was in the States at the time. He was known for making the Quartermass movies, which... Carpenter was a huge fan of. And so they seek him out to write the script and changes and stuff made by the producers, Carpenter's rewrite. Ultimately, Tommy Lee Wallace, 
the director's rewrite as well kind of pissed off Neil and he wanted his name taken off like he actually sued to get his name taken off um, he just didn't like the gore he didn't like some of the story aspects that they changed but they've said that like 60% of the story is his right and Tommy Lee Wallace rewrote everything right before filming and he now has the sole writing credit so that was kind of the original concept again was to just go back and do it as an anthology and you know even though the story is very different there are some stylistic things that kind of link them like you know it still opens with a jack-o'-lantern just like the Halloween movies except this is like a digitized 8-bit jack-o'-lantern yeah, this time like you know? 80s computer as fuck yeah, jack-o'-lantern which definitely hints at the whole idea of like the combination of ancient witchcraft with the modern computer you know age yeah, essentially absolutely and staying on this topic for a second where both you and I have kind of said that while this movie doesn't have Michael Myers it, it definitely captures the spirit of the rest of the franchise do you think a lot of the initial disappointment and negativity in the reviews when it first came out was mostly if not all of it due to the absence of Michael Myers yes I would agree I I understand mainstream critics being like bleh I don't like this movie because most mainstream critics until recent times were always very very harsh on horror movies and genre stuff like Siskel and Ebert at the time like fucking hated horror movies oh yeah I've read a couple like old Siskel and Ebert horror reviews and they are fucking hilarious because of how wrong they are yeah so uh, mainstream critics were never really super kind to horror but this movie especially because it had nothing to do with the previous movies you know right this is definitely one where like i could see a lot of people sitting there in the theater and it's like 45 minutes and just be like when the fuck is michael myers showing up <laughs> so anyway uh this movie was again directed by tommy lee wallace he's a guy who had a long history with john carpenter he had worn many many hats on all of carpenter's previous movies everything from like production designer to art director to co-writer so this is his directorial debut. He then would go on to do a lot of TV stuff, but he also did Fright Night Part 2, and specifically, he directed the original It TV miniseries in the 90s. Holy shit, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, okay. That's like the other main thing that he's known for. So, as I mentioned earlier, Dean Cundy also does the cinematography, which his career is legendary. So again, that guy's review of like, oh, this movie looks like shit. It doesn't look the same. It's the same fucking cinematography is the first movie shut up the use of widescreen in this movie is really great there's constantly things happening at the very edges of the movie frame that you're having to pay attention to so just the use of that format is excellent the music by alan howarth and john carpenter is great it's very very electronic very synthy which again makes sense for kind of where this movie goes but it's very moody and atmospheric the soundtrack is not one that i used to listen to to a ton, but Heather got me the, I think it's like the Waxworks. It was like a Mondo release of the soundtrack, and it's it's excellent. So I, I listen to it fairly often now. It's just background music. Yeah, it's it's very it's very Carpenter, yeah. and we have talked about Carpenter's two albums that he's put out, The Lost Themes, and it very much is of that same genre. Yeah, the masks in this movie are super iconic. <laughs> yeah, they are. Don Post Studios, they are like the OG Halloween mask maker company. They actually provided the shape mask for the original Halloween movie. So the filmmakers went back to them asking for masks for this movie. And the Skull and the Witch were existing designs that they already had, but they collaborated.
collaborated on creating like the jack-o'-lantern one because they they knew that they needed to have three masks so those have actually been like released you can actually buy them now but yeah those masks are just super iconic like when you see those three masks together those three colors those three characters it instantly evokes halloween just in general halloween that's easily my favorite pair of socks that i have as well too yeah and like just the three characters themselves a skeleton a witch face and a jack-o'-lantern if you're gonna take three cartoonish mascot type characters for a season those are probably gonna be the three in your top five choices for halloween easy yeah once again this movie stars tom fucking atkins so this is now like what the third movie that we've done with tom (laughs) atkins and once again tom atkins fucks yes did he just do 80s movies specifically horror movies or he just fucks i don't know about that necessarily but he definitely played nothing but dude on a mission kind of roles tom atkins is great i don't care what my wife says tom atkins is the man and again tom atkins was in the fog escape from new york creep show night of the creeps lethal weapon maniac cop and shit tons of other stuff yeah he stars as dr daniel chalice which what a fucking name (laughs) he is about as much of a doctor as i guess i am or you are which i guess i'm a little closer you're closer than i am yeah (laughs) Yeah, but but he's a doctor in the same sense that you're a doctor like he's not really a doctor Jumping ahead, I do love that one moment where his ex-wife is just like, oh yeah, drinking and doctoring, what a great combination. (laughs) He's exactly the type of character you think he is, and that he's basically the character he played in The Fog. Yep. Stacey Nelkin co-stars as Ellie Grimbridge, which, what a also great last name. She was in Get Crazy and Bullets Over Broadway. One kind of icky fact, apparently she dated Woody Allen for a while when she was like, like 16 i read about that and woody allen's film manhattan is totally about her yeah Yeah. and she expected that she was gonna star in that movie and by the time that they got to it he was like now you're too old now like okay so that definitely is kind of a curious detail especially since she still went on to star in bullets over broadway and then our third main character that i'll talk about is fucking dan o'herlihy the old man himself from (laughs) robocop playing Connell Cochran and dude has a crazy stellar long career um, I mean everything from like Orson Welles Macbeth to Imitation of Life to Failsafe which is one of the movies that Dr. Strangelove is kind of lampooning like I mentioned a second ago he was in Robocop 1 and 2 he was in The Last Starfighter he was also in Twin Peaks season 2 he plays Andrew when he comes back spoiler alert I guess for Twin Peaks Um, (laughs) but let's play this game again the Batman the Animated Series voice game so he was in an episode called Deep Freeze playing a character called Grant Walker which do you know at all who this character is because it's apparently not a character that shows up in the comics no actually I don't know this this is news to me so I bring this up only because we've done this game a few times and because it kind of has to do with his character 
character in this movie. So I had to look it up because I did not fucking remember what character this was. Grant Walker is basically Walt Disney. He like had a theme park with all these characters and all this stuff that people loved and he was getting super, super old. And so he thought, oh, I'm going to use Mr. Freeze's freeze technology to do the same thing to myself that he accidentally in a tragic like villain making accident did to himself so that I can extend my life indefinitely. So he literally does the like Walt Disney thing of cryogenically freezing himself. Yeah, like frozen head in a in a box. Yeah. So again, like very similar to the character that he plays in this movie where crazy weird scheme to dot 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 do something weird owns like a giant world renowned thing that everybody recognizes. So it was just kind of an interesting parallel that I figured I'd bring up. Well, and I like that he is Irish American who basically makes this company and they get an actor that is Irish and moved to America later on. Did he ever become an American citizen? I guess. I don't know. I have no idea. I remember reading that he was born in Ireland. So I, I have no idea if he actually like made permanent residence here in the States or not. But I mean, regardless if he did or not, I mean, he has a very American accent. I didn't really get too much of the Irish accent coming through in this movie. Yeah, it's not as overstated, I guess, as some of the other side characters in this movie that are like, oh, tardy, 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 kind of Yeah, yeah, ridiculous. exactly. Like, in comparison to the motel owner, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I love that, like, his character Cochran is definitely cut from the same cloth as every other, like, 80s corporate douchebag villain. <laughs> yep. With the added twist, too, that he's using the very thing he disdains, which is the commercialization of Halloween as the catalyst for his insane revenge plot. So I've got to say, like, and I've said this before, I said it on the Scanners episode, I had an idea of like what this movie was going to kind of be about, went into it. Not only did it not disappoint me, it exceeded my expectations. (laughs) So in my head, going into this movie, I thought it was going to be sort of like, it takes place in a small town there, but there's this factory on the edge of town that some people work for and they make these masks and they distribute it out to the kids and somehow, and this isn't spoiling anything, I thought that it was going to either turn into like aliens or something like that with these masks was kind of what I thought going into this movie. And while I was kind of on the mark with some of that, it definitely like goes to places I did not expect and I'm glad for it because, I mean, Stonehenge, all that stuff, we'll get to it when we go through the plot. As far as being a horror movie, this movie actually had some pretty good scares in it. I have to say, for as dated as it is, it is very much 80s. Very, very much 80s. It got me a couple times. There's some good jump scares, yeah. Yeah, there's some good jump scares, and a lot of the jump scares are someone being behind you or coming around the corner or off screen and then suddenly appearing behind you or to the side of you. A lot of same similar horror of like the idea of gang stalking. There's a little bit of that. Yeah, there's a lot of that dread of being followed, which Tommy Lee Wallace said that one of the big inspirations for this movie was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And so that, that I could completely definitely, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. And also too, there's a bit of horror for like what happens to your children and during Halloween, kind of in that hand in hand with Night of the Demons with the, the fucking old man and the razor blades yeah. and the apples. And also the whole aspect of the facade of a completely normal looking thing, you know, a man in a business suit being very sinister and not at all even human, kind of like men in black, although they, they're not really wearing black suits in this or wearing more like gray and other colors. It's but the same vibe. 
vibe, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty much men in black. And even outside the jump scares, which there were a handful, a lot of just the actual horror that takes place on screen, I am jumping a little bit ahead and we'll, we'll touch more on it later on, but kind of like what happens with the kid in the mask scene, which I know ex- you know exactly what I'm talking about. That Aaron. shit would have scarred me for life if I'd actually seen this growing up. Really, Same. truly, yeah. that would have fucked me up as a kid. I Because I didn't see this movie. Like, I, I probably saw bits and pieces of it on TV growing up, but like, I didn't see this movie fully until the Scream Factory Blu-ray came out several years back. That was the first time that I'd like actually sat down and fucking watched this movie once I had heard enough about it. But yeah, that scene specifically would have fucked me up as a kid. And I want to say that this movie was probably, for me, the scariest movie since maybe either we've done The Omen or maybe The Ritual. This movie creeped me out, but it was the good horror. It was kind of like that same kind of horror that I really enjoy, like that goes hand in hand with like The Shining, where even though it had a couple jump scares, which legitimately got me when I wasn't expecting it, it was more unsettling than anything else. It's more that creeping dread. And the jump scares made sense. They were well-earned and... Uh, it's definitely not the scariest movie we've done, but it, it is scarier than the most recent chunk of movies we've done. I will say that. All right. Well, let's get started talking about the plot. So the film opens very specifically on Saturday, October 23rd in Northern California, as we see by like eight title cards. <laughs> eight more days till Halloween, <laughs> Halloween, Halloween. So we see an older man running frantically down the road while being chased by a sedan and these mysterious men in suits like we mentioned a second ago. Speaking of, one of these suits is a guy named Dick Warlock. Oh shit. What a fucking great that name. That Dick Warlock? Like the one that's the executive producer or whatever for uh, what is it? Um, one of the crime shows, right? Like his name always pops up on a title No, card. you're thinking of Dick Wolf. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of Dick Wolf, yeah. But Dick Warlock also is in a lot of Carpenter stuff, isn't he? Yes. He was a stunt performer, but he did a lot of like other random jobs on Carpenter's early stuff, but um, he specifically played the shape in Halloween 2, which he's very much doing the same exact thing with his character in this movie as well. But yeah, I just, I wanted to point that out because Dick Warlock is one of the best names of all time. Anyway, this elderly man eventually makes his way to a gas station where the attendant is like watching a news program about the theft of one of the Stonehenge pillars, which keep that in mind, that comes back up. Well, and it's it's funny to me because this is like a really shitty like antenna TV in the middle of nowhere gas station and it's very obvious a newscast from Great Britain and just it's being aired in California in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. And it'd be one thing like if it was international news like American like CNN, but no, it's straight up British programming and this guy's just watching it randomly. Speaking of which, did you catch the reporter's name? What was the reporter's name? Derek Smith. Yes, it was. I do remember that. <laughs> Synchronicity, everyone. But in these opening scenes, this is probably the heaviest fear of gang stalking that I felt. These opening scenes were pretty harrowing and very good opening for a horror movie of just a guy being chased by almost like these, you keep saying the shape, Michael Myers. To me, these are more of like shapes chasing after you than even Michael Myers was because like I can remember what Michael Myers mask looks like. I can picture that in my head. I can't picture in my head the face 
faces of these two, for lack of better terms, men in black, yeah. just chasing you. Just generic white dudes in suits. And they're completely emotionless. There's no frustration when they can't fight them. There's no sympathy or anger when, like, whenever they catch them, which we'll get to. And while they do pull the slasher trick of disappearing and then being behind you suddenly, and yeah, and the actor who plays this old man, he does a great job of just the fear of being chased everywhere and you can't escape yeah so immediately after the news report on stonehenge we are treated to our first instance of an ad for silver shamrock masks which we have jokingly said a few times so the jingle obviously is the tune for london bridge they wanted something that was like public domain so they chose that it's perfect yeah it's super catchy and sticks in your head see i thought that they chose it because of Stonehenge and all that shit, but just the fact that they just kind of did it as public domain, it worked out so well. Yeah. And um, the voiceover in it is actually done by the director, Tommy Lee Wallace. The like, tune in at nine, kids, for the big giveaway. So that was the director. So anyway, the elderly man scares the attendant and he's clutching a pumpkin mask and muttering, they're coming, they're coming as he passes out. So the gas station attendant drives him to the nearby hospital. (laughs) Could you imagine being that fucking gas station attendant? How fucking terrifying would that be? You're working in the middle of night. It's been storming out. You know, near Halloween, you see this fucking weird mask commercial that's unsettling. Like So this commercial, you catch it throughout the movie. It, It just it's always in the background it's all over the place but like it is very unsettling because it's a pure black screen and these faces of kids kind of going with the beat of the song shaking back and forth like disembodied heads of kids just floating yeah yeah and like their faces change into the three masks the pumpkin the witch and the the skeleton and yeah and then just this weird fucking voice from the director and then it shows the silver shamrock logo on the background of black and the silver shamrock logo you can tell is just like oh this is a sinister 80s corporation got it yep and speaking of that attendant i love after he gets the older guy to the hospital the older guy like starts freaking out again and he's just like bye see you later (laughs) crazy white guy (laughs) yeah that'd be me i'd be the attendant in this situation fuck this amount yep so we now meet dr dan fucking chalice as he like drunk absentee father stumbles back into his ex-wife's house to see his kids (laughs) and um he brought them Halloween masks, which I love that the kids immediately just kind of like shit on the masks that he brought them because mom got them the good shit. She got them those silver shamrock masks, which they like go and break out and put on and kind of dance and sing the song for their dad. Which I can't remember. Do you see the masks that he bought them? Yeah, they're just plastic masks. One was like a kitty cat and the other one was, yeah. I don't know, like a Frankenstein or something. But the funny thing was at the time when I was watching this, I was like, you know, I mean, they're worse, but they're not that bad. Like, the silver shamrock masks aren't much better. They just fit over your entire face. Yeah. I just love those kids were just like, Dad! Fuck you, Dad. <laughs> um, speaking of which, the boy playing Chalice's son is Joshua John Miller, the son of Jason Miller from The Exorcist. <laughs> and Joshua John Miller also was in River's Edge, which I mentioned an episode or two ago, and he was in Near Dark, and now primarily he is a writer, um, which 
he wrote The Final Girls, which we'll eventually get to on this show as well. Chalice's ex-wife is also played by Nancy Loomis, who we've mentioned before in the Fog episode. She also appeared in Halloween 1 and 2, Assault on Precinct 13, and at the time of this movie, she was married to Tommy Lee Wallace and expecting their first child. Um, So that's a fun little cameo to throw in. So anyway, Chalice gets paged to the hospital to take care of the elderly man that showed up, which I know enough about hospital shit to know that a dude who wanders in in the middle of the night who's just kind of hysteric is not going to, like, get the fucking main doctor paged back to the hospital in the middle of the night. But anyway, Chalice ditches his family and heads back to the hospital. Well, and and going back on that thought, I was thinking, like, it's got to be more than just, like, a panic attack. Because at first I thought, oh, maybe he's having a heart attack. Like, he got scared so bad that he's, like, having a heart attack and that's why he's getting paged back to the hospital. But, like, when he walks in the hospital and just all not nonchalant and yeah the guy's just had a massive panic attack yeah and is now resting i was like oh so why the fuck are you here now then yeah really so while they've got him on a gurney they're all standing over him kind of talking about his condition and you know he's thinking the like guy that brought him in a tv in a nearby room starts playing the silver shamrock ad and the elderly guy like immediately comes to and starts screaming they're gonna kill us they're gonna kill us all while like still clutching the like pumpkin mask in his hand right Man, being in that hospital when that happens would have been terrifying. Speaking of which, like, the Halloween movies have a weird thing about just empty fucking hospitals. Notice that that hospital was, like, desolate as fuck for the most part. (laughs) I was thinking, like, if I still did floor nursing, I'd want to work there because they looked like they were doing fucking nothing. Yeah. I, like, I have been in hospitals overnight before. There are lots of people still just wandering around at all times. Oh, yeah. This hospital is fucking empty. So anyway, once everything kind of calms down, Chalice goes to take a nap in the break room and one of the like weird suited men arrives. Well, um, back up for one second before right before he lays down the call room as he's walking down the hallway. He's like hardcore flirting with the nurse. And oh, granted, yeah, I don't yeah. think he's actually like into the nurse, but he's just being that way with kind of is that way with all the women in this movie. Yeah. And, and then he fucking grabs her ass and she's just like, oh, stop. Oh, the 80s. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, all right, this movie's aged well, I see. So, one of the, like, mystery men arrives at the hospital, finds the elderly man's room, murders him, and then immolates himself in his car. Let yeah. me back up. <laughs> he makes, like, no effort to hide himself either. Yeah. He was walking down the hallway like a fucking Terminator and just goes right in this guy's room. And the elderly man's out. You know, they dope him up, so he's asleep. So, the way he kills this guy is he clutches his face with one hand and then with the other hand makes a, like, pincher kind of thing with his, like, thumb and finger and, like, a fucking bowling ball grip gouges those fingers fingers into the guy's fucking eye sockets and grabs the entirety of that nose to eye bone and just rips that shit out the front of his face. Yeah, like the orbital. He fucks up his entire frontal lobe orbital. Rearranges his face. It's literally a facelift by like the nose and and eyes. It's some gnarly shit and like they don't hide it either. Like there's definitely like an appliance on the actor's face that they just like crunch and pull out. It's 
fucking gnarly. Pretty gnarly. It's not super, super... It's not gory, gory necessarily, but it's but definitely just like, ugh, you can feel it. Yeah, this was one of the more unsettling kills in any movie we've covered so far. And something we kind of breezed over in the beginning of the movie, too, is you'd know that something's up with these guys in the suits because at one point when the guy is running from them and he's running through either, like, an auto parts place or, like, a junkyard, one of the guys catches him for a second and is, like, choking him, and he's able to dislodge a car that was like kind of being held by a brick underneath the wheel and the car sandwiches one of the guys in the suits between another car but instead of crushing him like a normal human being the car literally kind of stops where his arm is and you can tell like that and doesn't really crush him so you can tell that these guys are either like super strong or not human because at one point one of the other men in black after he catches up to him like looks down at the man in black who's pinned between the cars and they just kind of like look at each other like it's nothing yeah and then he continues to chase so you know that these guys are not human so like i mentioned he then leaves the room and he walks out right as the nurse is kind of coming back in and she's like oh what are you doing who are you and she starts screaming and freaking out as this guy again just terminator like turns leaves walks out chalice wakes up runs out into the hallway sees the guy chases after him and chalice gets outside just long enough to see the guy sitting in his car dump fucking gasoline all over himself and flick a lighter lighting himself on fire and exploding his car which the car would not explode like that immediately unless he had i guess doused the thing already the entire car and like gasoline but even then i don't think it would have exploded like that immediately yeah that's still a hell of a way to like make an exit though this whole scene was just fantastic because this really ratches up like what the fuck is happening now yeah so sometime in the night dot 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 you know now that the rest of the emergency medical services and like the fire department and everything's there. We see Chalice again in the break room calling his ex-wife to tell him that he can't pick up the kids. And this is where he finds the mask that the older guy was clutching as he came in, the pumpkin mask. Again, these are kind of like nitpicks you have throughout the entire movie of just like little thin plot holes. Wouldn't the cops take that mask that this guy was clutching the entire time saying they're going to kill us? Wouldn't the cops take that for evidence like you would think so especially since there is a police officer with the mask that comes right. into the room pacing for a minute and like sits the mask down and yeah somehow chalice just ends up with the mask oh dude he straight up just takes it he gets on the phone with his wife notices it. it's like next to the yeah, phone or just whatever steals evidence and just fucking takes it and i'm like what are you doing first off what are the cops doing they should have zipped this up and all that a long time ago he's not even hiding the fact that he's taking it either it's not like he like slips it into his coat no he like picks it up and like examines it and there are cops and shit everywhere in this room speaking of which there is an extra to the left of the frame during this scene who's like a fireman because he's got a fireman's hat on but this extra is clearly just standing there awkwardly you could tell he's like waiting for his like line to react because there's a moment when Charles is on the phone with his wife that he like turns and looks at the guy and is just like huh ex-wives am I right and the guy just kind of goes oh yeah 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 and like kind of nods at him but it's like the most (laughs) awkward that I've seen like any extra ever just like standing there like what do I do with my hands and you can see he's like kind of looking 
walking back and forth and he like looks at the camera like dead into the fucking barrel of the camera at one point what do i do <laughs> and then finally yeah he like is acknowledged by tom atkins and kind of gives that like okay yeah nod nod that's what i was supposed to do right it's it's a small detail but that kind of cracked me the fuck up this guy just awkwardly standing there even like the quote-unquote mistakes that this movie makes uh, are so all good. endearing yeah they're all endearing they all add to the cult status that is this movie it's all fantastic so the next morning a young woman named ellie grimbridge arrives at the hospital to identify her father who we learned was named harry grimbridge so she shows up says yeah that's my father what happened you know are y'all looking into it and she kind of goes off to mourn chalice kind of sees her she sees him and there's kind of a quick acknowledgement between the two of them which when they look at each other that way i was like he's gonna have sex with her later in this movie isn't he this is tom atkins this is an 80s horror movie it's gonna happen he's probably a good bit older than she is it's gonna happen so a few days later chalice drops by the coroner's office to check in on the progress with the two bodies specifically like the remains of the weird guy in the suit in the car and again there's definitely a vibe between chalice and this coroner lady they definitely like flirt and he says specifically as they're like arm in arm like walking out the room together he says hey you still have that uh <laughs> they just keep laughing like what what was that line about was that just like some weird improv line or like you still have that what <laughs> and like the couple times they talk she's always like uh you owe me dinner and he's like i'll buy you Get four you dinners and this dinners. is like and this is like already after he's hooked up with ellie which spoiler alert, yeah they definitely are gonna hook up later on yeah but like yeah he's totally like with ellie at this point but then when he calls her on the phone later on when they're out of town and like is still flirting with her on the phone tom atkins in this movie is basically like old James Bond I guess just flirting with every woman shamelessly but all the women are reciprocating well not just reciprocating but most of the women in this movie initiate which you look back and you're like oh this is kind of 80s icky but in literally every instance the female character is the one who initiates yeah true and I read later on because I I did reread a plot synopsis after reading or after watching the movie and all that somewhere it was confirmed I I guess either by the director or maybe a novelization of the movie or something that it's heavily implied the coroner woman is the one who his affair with her is kind of what broke up his marriage with his ex-wife ah that might be in the yeah. novelization which there's one or two yeah. details from the novelization i'll bring up later as well but yeah like the first scene with the coroner is that like he's going to leave she does like full-on kiss him like on the mouth kiss him so there's definitely a vibe between them so and this was something i was a little confused confused about was this coroner working with the police or working in the hospital i assume she's working in the hospital yeah it looked like she was in the hospital but there were some lines that she said like where she's like i don't know if i can give you that information that made it sound like she was doing this all as like investigative yeah i don't know so. like the details of how that works in real life so i'm not sure so a few days later a few more days later friday specifically we see chalice drinking at a bar and this is like the best 80s wood paneling lots of cheese paintings on the wall old school tv hanging up like this is the kind of bar that i would want to drink at absolutely this is like a lot of the new orleans dive bars that i love and uh sure enough right on the tv screen what is it three more days till halloween 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 three more days till halloween he's like yeah turn that turn that shit off so they like switch over to a basketball game and the bartender's like what you don't like halloween he's just like no i fucking don't switch it off 
There's also a TV ad for the original Halloween movie on the TV. So this is like kind of the meta thing of, yeah, the Halloween one and two movies are movies within this universe because they are going to play at like the horror-thon on Halloween night. Yeah, is this the first commercial that says the Halloween movie is being sponsored by Silver Shamrock yes. as part of the Halloween giveaway? Yeah. Yeah, so that's like the big thing with the ad. They show one of the scenes too briefly of Michael chasing Jamie Lee Curtis down the stairs or something. And you know what? This is a good moment for me to just go ahead and plug in audio of the ad so y'all can hear the details for yourselves. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. So, anyway, Ellie shows up at the bar, which I don't know how she tracked him down to this specific bar, but cool. Yada, 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 it happened. So she showed up to, like, press Chalice for more information about her father's death. And Chalice tells her kind of about the ominous warning that her father was yelling the night that he died. So the two of them go to the general store that her father ran, and she finds his itinerary stating that he was supposed to, like, pick up a new shipment of the Silver Shamrock masks from the plant in a town called Santa Mira. So there's a scene after this where Chalice again calls his ex to once again ditch his fatherly responsibilities. To go off with this woman he just met. Yeah. And of course, he's just like, I'm just going to a conference, babe. It's just going to be boring doctor stuff. And no, he like literally, the way that he's standing in the frame, you he's standing at like a bank of payphones. And as soon as he hangs up the phone with his ex-wife, he steps sideways in the frame. And you see that he was standing perfectly in front of like a fucking sixer of high life, <laughs> which he grabs and it runs like into the road and immediately hops in Ellie's car and they take off. Yeah. Well, and so funny thing is this town in Santa Mira, which I'm sure that you might have brought, we're about to bring up, but I'm kind of stealing your thunder. I did read that this fictional town name was actually also used in, guess what? Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yep. It was the uh, fictional town in the 1956 film. Uh, So this was one of those things where kind of like, how did Ellie find him? But this was another one of those things of like, just because this is the way it is for the movie to happen. But in the back of my head, the entire time, I was like, I will give Chalice this. We are making fun of like Tom Atkins for being like a horn dog and like ditching fatherly responsibilities to drink and all this but I will give him this he is very curious like he has a very curious nature because he is going above and beyond yeah. to like chase down this mystery of the masks and silver shamrock and they're gonna kill us all to the point where it's just like I'm the only one who can figure this out so I'm gonna do it yeah I think it would have made way more sense if he were a police detective you know like imagine if he was a police detective and they paged him to go to the hospital because this crazy guy showed up screaming they'll kill us all and he's there to see like the death and the immolation and all that and it takes off from there it's just a weird detail that like he's a doctor of all things i guess they wanted to justify him being able to catch the guy setting himself on fire in a more believable timetable of him exactly being at the hospital but like other than that yeah and that's why i made that joke earlier on in the episode about like he's as much of a doctor 
doctors, you or I are a doctor because it only comes up like one more time specifically. Because yeah, he's way more of like a dogged police detective. Yeah. Which, by the way, too, the town stuff before they leave to go to the town out in the middle of nowhere, it's all the same town that they used for shooting the fog. So that little like corner strip and everything was all in the fog as you well. You know, I thought, I'm glad you brought that up when I was watching a movie. I thought about asking you that during the watching movie, but I totally forgot about it. Yep. So Chalice and Ellie make their way to the fictional town of Santa Mira, which is way out in the middle of nowhere, California. Right off the bat, the fucking sign is like Silver Shamrock. I think even too, like as they're pulling into the town, it feels like a ghost town in some ways. Yeah. Everything's kind of boarded up and locked up and the handful of people that are there like eyeballing them suspiciously. Yeah, like glaring at them. And then you even see cameras Yeah, on like street corners and the cameras kind of like follow their car as they're driving into town. So right off the bat, you know something is really strange with this place. Yeah. And as they're driving there, we get kind of a voiceover from Ellie telling the background of Santa Mira somehow. I guess maybe it's like on the map or whatever. But we learn that the town was essentially taken over by a man named Connell Cochran in the 50s. And he turned the primary town enterprise, which was a dairy factory, into the Silver Shamrock Novelties Company, which makes Halloween masks. And he also shipped in a ton of Irish workers, which gave the town kind of a new cultural identity as well. So, yeah, everything in this town is like Irish as fuck, essentially. Um, Everything is named something Irish or whatever. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah, very much. So they decide to get a room at a nearby hotel as kind of a base of operations. And so that way they can also pose as buyers so they don't draw a whole lot of attention to themselves. So they decide to like get a little bit of information from the locals as much as they can. And as they're checking in, Ellie is kind of distracting the motel manager who again is like Irish as fuck. Just tardy, tardy, tar. <laughs> He's a good man. He saved our town. Yeah. Like all, all that bullshit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. here's Mr. Cochran now. Chalice sneaks off to the front office and looks in the guest book and sees, oh, Harry Grimbridge signed the guest book. So he was definitely here at one point in time. And, and as the motel manager and Ellie are like unloading the car, a ominous blacked out sedan rolls slowly by the motel, which the motel manager points out, oh yeah, there's Mr. Cocker now. He's such a great man. He turned this town around financially and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. in this moment too, this is kind of a weird, like everybody shows up at one time kind of thing because this giant RV slams into the parking lot and we are introduced to the Cupfer family, which is <laughs> Buddy and Betty Cupfer and their son, Lil Buddy Cupfer. And this son is such a little shit. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> he like immediately gets his bike off the front of the RV and the mom is yelling. I'm like, you be careful and you be back here. And he's like, yeah, fuck you, mom. And like flips off the mom. <laughs> yeah. um, which apparently this actor, Brad Schechter, he was only in like two or three things. The guy that plays the son. But apparently now, according to Tommy Lee Wallace, he's like a rabbi, which is great. <laughs> and this family is such a caricature. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess a, a nuclear family of just the fucking dad being like, oh, women, you know what I mean? And yeah. like chain smoking with cigars. This is almost like some cousin Eddie shit. <laughs> yeah. And the wife is like checking out Dr. Chalice, obviously in front of her husband and is very airheaded. And then the son is just a fucking bastard of a kid. Yeah. These people made me fucking laugh when they pulled up. Yeah. So they 
they roll up. And then we have another character also arrive named Marge Gutman, which what a great Wisconsin name there, Marge Gutman. She also arrives griping about how the factory like messed up her order of masks, right? She like storms off. Chalice and Ellie are both just like, Bleh, like all these people just all here at once. Marge Gutman is played by Garn Stevens, who was married to Atkins at the time of them making this movie. Yeah, because I remember reading something important about her a couple days ago. I was trying to remember like what the tie was. That's right. She was married to Tom Atkins. Yep. So Chalice and Ellie go to their room where Chalice immediately pulls the old, I guess I'll sleep out in my car, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, Ellie of course is just like oh hell no you're you're staying here with me boy so they start making out we have a weird announcement across the entire town on these megaphones that are throughout the town of a 6 p.m curfew which 6 p.m is real early for a curfew and we see all the surveillance cams watching the streets like you mentioned and according to legend which i don't see anything being wrong about this because it definitely sounds like her supposedly the voice on the curfew call is just Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, now that I'm recalling the voice, I could totally see that. That would be a pretty cool, like, uncredited cameo, if that's the case. Yeah. Later that night, while returning from the liquor store... Which, so much for that fucking curfew, by the way. Yeah, like, everybody's still running around. He's walking on the main street, and the liquor store, it's not like he, like, snuck into it or anything. Liquor store is, like, lit up, totally open. You can see the shop owner, like, in the background, handing him his liquor, and they're doing the transaction. And, I mean, it's now nighttime. There's no sunlight, because earlier on during the scene where it was announcing that curfew, it was dusk and the sun was still out. So it's just like, all right then what the fuck is the point of the curfew? (laughs) Yeah, but he's going back to the hotel through these back alleys and he bumps into a bum who asks him for like a drink and Chalice takes the opportunity to ask this guy about Cochrane and like what he knows and the bum kind of reiterates some of the details that the Irish were brought in to work at the factory instead of him hiring the locals and you know, he just kind of like wanders off mumbling that he's going to like burn the factory down and this is going to be the last Halloween for Cochrane, blah blah blah. (laughs) Which, I love that he begins his request for a drink by stating, he ain't got no diseases or nothing. (laughs) Uh, And so this guy goes back to his shanty and Chalice, you know, makes his way back to the motel. And while this bum is like in his shanty, he's just eating cheese whiz straight from the can. But then he is also now attacked by two of the like suited mystery men. And they literally like rip his fucking head off. They, like, force him to his knees. One guy holds his shoulders, and the other guy walks up and just grabs his entire fucking head and just twists and pulls the whole fucking thing off. Like pulling a mask off or something. Like pulling a toy apart, basically, or a Lego. Yeah. So, again, he was talking shit about Cochrane, spilling these details, and they probably, like, caught him on one of the hidden cameras and took him out. Talk shit, get hit. Talk shit, get your fucking head ripped off. Yeah. So, Ellie is is walking back to their room and she's kind of surprised by Marge, who we learn that Marge is in town to fix her order of masks that they messed up and she says that like the quality of these masks is getting worse and worse. You know, the trademark pin fell off this one that my kid was just throwing against the wall. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> so yeah, the little like silver shamrock little trademark tag is like on the back of the mask. It fell off apparently. So yeah. Chalice back in the room now calls the coroner. 
and he wants just kind of an update on what she's found in the charred remains of the mystery men. Was this the scene where like Ellie's in the shower and he calls her or something? Because there was a scene where like it's obvious that him and Ellie had hooked up, but then he calls her and again, just very flirtatious nature over the phone while she's like in the fucking shower. Yeah, this is that scene. So he calls the coroner. She says that, you know, there must be something wrong because all the like remains are like just a bunch of mechanical parts. And so she just chalks it up to like, these are just car parts that the forensic techs actually mixed up with the real remains. So he's like, okay, cool. I'll call you later. Chalice and Ellie, this is the scene where like they go at it. So he gets back to the room. She's in lingerie. They start going at it. And I love that like clearly it cuts to like they're done banging and they're just kind of hanging out in bed. And now he fucking asks her her age. (laughs) What the fuck, Chalice? Again, the 80s. Oh, we are kind of leaving out a key point because when he calls the coroner, he goes to the main office to do it while she's in the shower. And after they hang up, it kind of zooms back and you see that there's like a device behind the counter that is obviously like monitoring the phone. Yeah, it's it's either this scene or the next one. But yeah, there's like a little microphone that's hidden behind the desk where he can't see it. That's clearly like listening in on his conversation. While Chalice and Ellie are going at it in their room, Marge settles in for the evening and she picks up the tag off the back of the mask that fell off. And she's inspecting it and she notices that on the back side, there's like a strange microchip that's embedded like in the plastic tag. So she grabs a bobby pin and starts poking at it and gets fucking laser blasted in the goddamn mouth. And like, this is straight up a laser beam coming out of the fucking microchip. Yeah. This is the part of the movie where I thought, okay, maybe we're going in the direction of aliens now because it is like a sci-fi horror death. When it blasts her, and this is a pretty horrific image because obviously like they put on a mask on this actress. Yeah, this is this is all appliances. Yeah. But, like her face is all kinds of distorted, grotesque, half melted off. And yeah, it shot like kind of into her mouth. So her mouth is open and like out of the charred remains as her mouth is open a fucking bug just crawls out and like crawls behind her head and it's not just a bug it's like one of those fucking gopher cricket things yeah it's like one of the grossest goddamn bugs yeah this was a pretty good scare in general yeah so Chalice and Ellie are then woken up by all the commotion of what appears to be like a medical team arriving to take Marge's body so it's just a bunch of again these like very nondescript white dudes in white medical overcoats and they have Marge's body on a stretcher that they're putting into this van like a silver shamrock van and Chalice goes over and it's like yo 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 wait I'm a doctor like I can help her what's going on here where are y'all taking her which again this is the only instance where it comes up again that like he's a medical professional so the motel manager just appears out of nowhere and is like yeah oh no don't worry about it she's being taken to the factory and at that point Cochran himself shows up. So this is the first time that we actually like meet Cochran. So he rolls up in his blacked out sedan, gets out, introduces himself and is like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We're taking her to the factory. We have these like state of the art facilities. She'll be well taken care of. Don't worry about it. You know, the nearest hospital is too far away. And mind you, every like employee or person or what, including the people in suits that are associated with Silver Shamrock, say nothing. They don't talk to like even, even these guys in the 
lab coat, which obviously these guys are a little more human, but even then they don't really say anything to Dan. And Cochran just has very much like a swagger to him. Like yeah. he comes out and he's like a devilish smile and like, oh, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry a thing. We've all got it under control yeah. sort of attitude. And it was kind of funny because after he like assures them like everything's taken care of as they're walking away, Cochran like kind of leans over to one of the scientists and is just like, what happened? Like his voice immediately changes yeah. like what the fuck happened? And the guy's just like, oh, we think it was, I forget what the guy says. He's a like, misfire. We had another misfire, sir. Yeah. And Chalice and Ellie like overhear this one detail, right? Which is really weird. Also too, there were way too many medical dudes for just this one task of like getting her by. There should be like two, maybe three at most, but there's a dozen dude in medical overcoats. <laughs> yeah. Way to be inconspicuous. Yeah, really. <laughs> so the next morning, Chalice calls the coroner again and she restates that all that was actually retrieved from the exploded car were these mechanical parts that there were no like actual biological remains right so chalice then asks her to dig up more info on cochran and this is where we see like the little hidden microphone listening into the yeah. conversation right. so dan and ellie now go to the factory finally and they start asking about the order that her father placed and you know the people there are like oh well he picked up that order so we don't know what you're talking about blah 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 yeah and they they do this under the uh, guise that they own their own shop like they've been pretending to be like a married couple that run yeah. a halloween store the cupfer family arrives at the factory right and they are like actually greeted by Cochran. He like comes out and loudly announces to all the staff there that Buddy Kupfer was the top seller that year and as a reward like he and his family are getting a tour of the factory. How generous. And at this point Chalice and Ellie manage to kind of insinuate themselves into going along. You know Buddy's like, hey, what about my friends here? Can they come along? So they get a tour of the factory and we see them like literally pouring the latex into the molds and making the masks, which the exterior of the Silver Shamrock factory was actually a milk factory. You know, they kind of work that detail into the plot of the movie. The actual mask production interiors that we see where they're actually pouring the masks, that's the actual Don Post Studios where they made the masks in real life. And then the main lab space from later in the movie is literally just the raw inside of a soundstage. Like, they didn't dress it up at all. They just put shit in the soundstage to make that set. <laughs> that's that's cool. But I mean, honestly, it's very effective. Oh like, yeah, totally. It all seemed to fit. This looked like what a mask factory would look like to me, I guess. Yeah. So they move from the factory floor into like the Hall of Fame room where there's all these other like toys and mechanical contraptions and masks and stuff on display. And Buddy kind of rattles off some of the gags that Cochran's famous floor, which include sticky toilet paper. Okay. <laughs> like, got that. The soft chainsaw. Mm, sure. I guess I can understand that one. And the dead dwarf gag, which what the fuck is the dead <laughs> yeah. dwarf gag? This fucking scene made me think of in Zoolander. I invented the piano tie. Yeah, yeah, because Buddy's going on and he's like, oh, you don't know that thing? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and also too, another little detail you're kind of catching in this room is there's a lot of toy animatronic type of, like, yeah. old animatronic kind of looking things. Lots of, like, mechanical clockwork kind of toys yeah. and contraptions. Kind of like even steampunk-esque. 
A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just another like one of those huh interesting detail because these are very reminiscent of the shit the coroner's looking at right now. Yeah. They get back around to where they're like packaging the masks and little buddy asks for one of the masks and Cochran's like, oh yeah, sure you can have a mask, but take take one of these instead. Those have to go through final processing still. You know, you don't want one of those. And so they like purposely give him one of the pumpkin masks that has the tag on it. They pull it out of the like final packaging and everything and give it to him. Yeah, the only thing as an audience you can see that as part of the final processing is adding that tag. Yeah. Because the first mask the kid grabs, you can tell like doesn't have the silver shamrock tag on it. Yeah. And Big Buddy specifically kind of presses Cochran about like what the final processing steps are. And there's like a giant door marked final processing. Final processing. Yeah. That fucking made me laugh so hard because it was like a gigantic metal door. Yeah. It it was almost just finishing touches and secret ingredients. It's like, what the fuck else do you need to do to the mask besides slap a tag on it? Yeah. So while they're kind of in this courtyard area, Chalice notices that the suited men are standing guard all over the factory grounds and that there are cameras everywhere again. And they're on like, they're on the roof. Yeah. They're all over the place. They're all over. So... Chalice and Ellie begin to leave, and as they are, they happen to see her father's green station wagon, and it's, like, stashed inside of one of the factory buildings with a tarp over it, and she immediately, like, runs toward that building saying, like, oh, that's my father's car, that's my father's car, and, of course, two of the suited men in black kind of step in line of her running into the building, and Cochran kind of, like, laughs it off a little bit, like, oh, yeah, just, you know, don't worry about that. Rookie mistake, Cochran. Yeah. Way to hide that. So, back at the motel, Ellie and Chalice finally decide, like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Like, something weird is definitely going on. I love Chalice's detail, too. He's like, yeah, it's time we call in the Marines. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) sure. So, Chalice leaves the motel room, goes back to the main office, and tries to, like, phone the police or anybody. And discovers, like, the phones are not working. When he goes back to the room, he finds Ellie missing. She's completely disappeared from the room. And, you know, lights flash through the windows of the motel room and it you know there's cars that parked out front and there's just a line of the creepy men in suits standing there waiting for him so they immediately start making their way into their motel room and smashing through the windows and everything chalice manages to escape out the back side of the motel and he basically just starts running through the town eventually makes his way to the fucking factory and while he's inside he gets into a room where he discovers like an old woman in a rocking chair knitting and he goes up to her questioning her and saying like where do they take her what do they do with her and as he like grabs this old woman by the shoulders and shakes her a little bit her fucking head falls off and it's kind of a jump scare moment yeah this is a pretty good scare but then he realizes that she's just a clockwork automaton kind of thing yeah then chalice is attacked by the dick warlock bot and as they're fighting kind of in the factory area like this guy is definitely like overpowering chalice like he He's picking him up and fucking throwing him across the room, punching him like 10 feet into the air kind of bullshit. But eventually, Chalice kind of gets the upper hand, and as they're wrestling on the ground, he like starts punching the guy in the chest and literally punches his fucking arm through the guy's chest at one point. And that's when you realize like, oh, something's up. And the guy on the ground, again, Dick Warlock, starts vomiting like this yellow-orange goop, and Chalice pulls his fucking fist out of the guy's chest and it's also covered in this yellow orange goop which 
apparently was just frozen orange juice concentrate. Yeah. And he, like, pulls out mechanical parts and wires from the guy's chest. And he kind of, like, is so shocked he sort of, like, gives up a little because then a couple more uh, of these guys in the suit show up, which at this point you're like, okay, they're kind of, they're androids. Grab him and then Cochran does that classic villain speech of, like, they're nearly flawless, aren't they? (laughs) They're almost human like we are. Yeah. It took me years to perfect. It's just like, what the fuck did you do to make killer androids that look perfectly like human beings? Yeah. So Cochran takes Chalice to like the final processing floor that we saw earlier, which is now revealed to be a fucking massive warehouse lab. It's a super villain lair. Totally. Totally. This is like Dr. Doom's lab. Yeah. 100%. So in the center, there's this giant ring of computer terminals that are all wired and hooked up to the fucking stolen Stonehenge pillar (laughs) that's right in the middle of the room and there's all this scaffolding built up around it where there's more android guys like literally chipping away at the Stonehenge pillar and they're implanting fragments of the fucking Stonehenge pillar into the little trademark tags for the back of the masks. Yeah, there's all these faceless, not only the androids in suits, but also these faceless lab technicians like in white coats I assumed were also androids but these were the ones that I guess were designated towards manufacturing and research and whatever like combination of science and magic that they're doing and this is kind of where like he so I always wondered why this was called season of the witch and I thought it was gonna be one of those stupid things where oh they just needed a spooky title so they called it that kind of like how troll 2 doesn't have any trolls in it it has goblins (laughs) yeah I thought it was like something dumb like that but we'll get to it more when he kind of tells Dan everything but it made sense to me as to why they chose season which was it the best title they could have used probably not but it makes a lot more sense to me now that I've seen this movie yeah so Cochran reassures Chalice that Ellie's okay and he shows her on a security monitor you know she's laying on a gurney kind of passed out he then switches to a camera watching a room somewhere else in the facility and the room is made up to look like a normal living room and he says you know I think you need a demonstration so the Kupfer family is brought into this room and they're like locked in and they're kind of weirded out and slightly suspicious but they just kind of assume that Cochran will show up at any moment to explain why they've been brought in and Big Buddy's like oh yeah he probably just wants my opinion on like some new ads for next year or something which what fucking Chiquita banana outfit is the mom wearing by the way like what <laughs> what is that fucking shirt and everything else well and I love I love when they go into this room because it becomes abundantly clear that this is like a testing room immediately yeah because the mom at one point it's like oh they must have a nice view out of this window opens the curtain and it's just metal pl- Plating wall, yeah. and she's just like, "Oh, there isn't a window." So anyway, a technician switches on the feed to like the TV set that's in this room where the cupfers are, and the TV set begins to play the final version of the Silver Shamrock ad. And so the ad gets to the point where it's like, "Hey kids, gather around the TV, put on your masks. It's time for the big giveaway, right?" So little buddy like 
puts on his fucking pumpkin mask because he had asked him to. And the mom is just going on and on about, this is a fucking joke. This place is ridiculous. This guy is full of shit. And the mom's like hysterically laughing. And at this yeah. point, the like magic pumpkin image begins to like strobe on the TV, activating the chip in the mask. This is a kind of an epilepsy warning because this thing really subliminally like flashes over and over and over again at you. Yeah. I will say that to the dad's credit, the dad is becoming increasingly more and more nervous and worried and suspects that something fucked up is going on. Whereas the mom, like you said, is just thinking this is all a practical joke. Yeah. Again, the signal from the TV is like activating the microchip in the back of the mask. And as the mom's like hysterically fucking laughing, little buddy falls over onto the ground and starts convulsing. And the mom immediately goes from laughing hysterically to like fucking screaming and this kid's head fucking like melts and explodes into like a bunch of bugs and snakes and shit like the kid's gripping at the mask all these crickets and spiders and shit are pouring out of his head and snakes are coming out of his mouth yeah his head itself doesn't explode it kind of almost instead shrivels up yeah as these bugs and snakes are crawling out from underneath his head like melts and like the mask kind of like shrivels up kind of like a dried out apple or something this is a pretty fucking stellar like horror scene this is easily like the best scary death scene in the movie like this this would have fucked me up when i was a kid yeah and not not only the fact that it's just like what's happening like someone has this mask that you would think is otherwise harmless and like it's all about halloween and and kills you but also the fact that it's happening to the kid and not the dad i thought that was a great choice to have the kid be the one to do it it adds that extra layer of horror because not only is it someone dying it's a kid dying but then on top of that children are supposed to have fun on halloween and this whole idea is like turned on its head now yeah killing kids is just super taboo in general so yeah like i said this this definitely would have like fucked me up if i was a kid and the yeah. strobing light from the tv set is lighting this entire room which is making it that much more eerie and weird the parents start trying to like rush out and like the snakes that crawled out of this kid's head basically start attacking them yeah the mom passes out but then big buddy the dad you know is sitting there being attacked by all these fucking rattlesnakes that just crawled out of his son's head yeah so he yeah. falls over and dies and again chalice and cochran are watching all this on the security monitors and at Atkins' reaction here is fucking gold because he's like being held, forced to watch by the men in black security guard guys. And I love the one reaction where he just closes his eyes and like grits his teeth and just raises both of his fists up in the air, just like, no, why could you? Cochrane! That fucking moment is great. Also, too, Brad Schechter that played Lil Buddy said that after they filmed this scene, crickets were just loose all over the fucking soundstage for weeks. And they constantly (laughs) just heard, like, crickets in the background all the time. I love that they used real crickets for the the scene. That's great. Oh, yeah. And and this is none of this is, like, fake either. This is not, like, fake rubber snakes crawling out. Oh, no, yeah. I could tell. This is a fake dead kid, but these are definitely, like, real bugs and real snakes and shit crawling out of it. 
hurt. And they're probably like garden snakes or corn snakes, like harmless snakes, but it's still just And like, now uh, that that one was a fucking rattlesnake for sure. Was it? Yeah, yeah that, that one was definitely a rattlesnake. So anyway, the Kupfers are now all fucking dead and we see a full demonstration of what is actually gonna happen. So they escort Chalice to this holding room and we then cut to a montage of kids all across the U.S., buying the masks, wearing the masks, putting on their costumes. It's kind of funny because I expected this montage to only show like, oh, New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, like all the big cities, but no, it's Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, Baton Rouge, like I I think Phoenix, Arizona was another one of them. Like I did kind of appreciate it that it was like, no, this is like not only the big cities, like this is everywhere, but that kind of iconic image that you see on like all the uh, posters and all that of like the kids walking in the distance or walking on the hill and they're surrounded by red. Yeah, it's like the kids walking home against the dusk of the sunset. The dusk. Yeah, it's really striking. I think that one was in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. And obviously they were in a suburban area that's up on a hill away from downtown and they're, yeah, it's almost like they're walking down a mountain or a hill with dusk in the background. But yeah, that montage was pretty good, Which I gotta say. Th- okay, if we're gonna talk about plot holes, this is the biggest, most glaring plot hole aside from like fucking Stonehenge magic, but <laughs> <laughs> they keep saying, like, yeah, kids, tune in at nine after the horrorthon for the big giveaway. Um, nine o'clock central pacific eastern like what fucking time zone first of all because if this is supposed to be like a signal that is sent out to trigger all these masks at one time then like time zones bro like okay sure is it just gonna be like a rolling wave of like every hour like kids across the country are dying or is it just gonna happen at once or what while while cochran's plan is definitely sinister and he probably will get hundreds of deaths on his hand it's pretty shabby too at the same time (laughs) it all hinges on the fact that his masks are the only masks that children are wearing and that every single one of them will be in front of their TVs watching with their masks on after wearing them all night trick-or-treating I'm assuming and then I did think about that fact because I kept saying like make sure you tune in at 9 I just assume that like wherever this commercial aired it changed the time to fit whatever like time zone they're in because 9 o'clock Pacific time, which it's clearly nighttime when it gets to that point in the movie. So that means it's fucking midnight on the East Coast that all these yeah. kids are expected to be awake at their TVs, right? Yeah. Again, Cochrane's plan is a stone cold. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of holes in this sink and ship, yeah. but it'll be effective enough. We then cut back to the coroner, and she's trying to call the motel that Chalice was staying at to give him an update on her findings, and she is. Murdered by one of the like men in suits that shows up to silence her, you know, because she's looking into Cochrane. And, you know, he fucking surprises her around the corner. And while she falls to the ground, he like stands over her, grabs a fucking power drill, and just power drills through her fucking face. Which we don't see this death, oddly. This is like the one death that, oddly enough, we don't see in graphic detail. So now the coroner is out of the picture. Yeah, I did feel bad about this death. I was like, oh, I didn't, I, even though I saw it coming as soon as they showed the microphone recording their phone call, I was just like, I liked this character for the few times she was on screen. I, I didn't want her to die. <laughs> yeah. We cut to that night, Halloween night. Chalice is tied to a chair in this holding cell, and this is where Cochran, like, finally explains his giant devious plan, which, th- let's just let him explain it for us instead of us going through it. Enjoy the horror fun, Doctor. 
And don't forget to watch the big giveaway afterwards. Why, Cochran? Why? Do I need a reason? Mr. Cuthbert was right, you know. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. But there's a better reason. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands, and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween, the festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices, a part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. witchcraft baby oh <laughs> yeah season of the witch witchcraft See, there are sort of kind of witches in this. so this is why i specifically gave the context beforehand of what irish halloween is because this is kind of where all the dots are connected a little bit but it's not entirely obvious if you don't actually know some of the background of what that whole thing looks like so i like how he breezes over the fact that they stole a part of stonehenge all he says is just like well that took some work yeah we got it done it's like Wait, how the fuck did you airlift it like in the middle of the night and like were able to stay silent on everyone's radar yeah. and transport it over international waters back to California? Like, what the fuck did you do? Yeah, a Stonehenge pillar is not a lightweight thing. And yeah, you have to put that motherfucker on a boat for a long time. So this is all just an old witch warlock Irish guy yells at clouds like these damn totally. kids and they're trick or treating and candy. We got to bring balance back to the world. Old, so we gotta have a sacrifice <laughs> literally the basis of this entire movie and him killing like hundreds and thousands of children by turning their heads into fucking bugs and snakes is he's mad at children yeah for liking trick-or-treating i guess dot 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 so cochran turns on the tv that's in the holding room which is still playing the original halloween movie at this point um as we kind of heard in the audio clip like the last little bits of that original music are playing as he says happy halloween so he puts the skull mask on chalice and just leaves him to die which big rookie mistake he doesn't at least leave one or two androids in the room yeah with chalice. Some guards why what, what were you doing the chair that they tie him to obviously can move yeah it's like a rolling chair yeah and granted they did tie him tight but it looks like it was like seat belts because what they kind of yeah. tied him with or like it, i think it was it was like some kind of weird straps yeah and biggest rookie mistake you can make is tying him to a movable chair 
there, but then you leave him alone in the room like a goddamn idiot supervillain. Yeah. So what happens next is exactly what you'd expect. Chalice scoots his fucking chair close enough to like literally kick in the TV screen and bust the TV. Well, before that, he throws his mask over the camera in the room somehow, like with just his hands still tied up to like get the mask off and then toss it over the camera. Perfect downtown Kobe shot. Which, by the way, it took them like 49 tries to get that right because the director, Tommy Lee Wallace, was like, yeah, why don't we just toss the mask over the camera like this? And then he tossed the mask and did it perfectly. And Dean Cundy was like, motherfucker, you just jinx us because now it's going to take forever to actually get that on camera. <laughs> and sure enough, it took like 49 tries for them to get that shit right. So Chalice, you know, like I said, he like throws the mask over the camera in the room, kicks in the TV screen, cuts himself loose from the chair, and escapes through a ventilation shaft. And he kind of makes his way through the grounds of the factory and manages to find and rescue Ellie. She was tied to an exam table. And in this process, like there's one more moment where he like finds a phone successfully calls out to his ex-wife and is like baby baby you gotta get the kids mess you gotta take them away you like you can't let them watch the tv and she's just like fuck you you know you're such a deadbeat blah 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 and he's like no please listen to me right he did say that he was just gonna be out of town long enough to be back for halloween yeah. but he's not there for halloween so she's she just basically hangs up on him again he finds ellie she's tied to a uh, examination table but you know he wakes her up gets her out they start running through the facility and then they accidentally end up in the huge lab area again. And just off to the side, they find a cardboard box like full of the fucking trademark tags. So Chalice sneaks over to the central control console, like all these other like people around, and he just kind of like dun 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 dun. Dun 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 dun. Yeah. Dun 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 dun. Just like sneaks over like completely conspicuously. <laughs> he, he did it in the same way I play Metal Gear Solid when I think I'm being like stealthy and I'm fucking not being stealthy, but sometimes the AI is dumb enough to trick. Yeah, he does it like that, like out in the open. There are people everywhere. Yeah. How no one saw him at all is beyond me. So he just starts pushing a bunch of random buttons on this console to trigger the signal to play over the loudspeakers. So, I have a headcanon thing for this. Earlier on when Cochran was showing him the demonstration that killed the kid, he hit a certain sequence of buttons and I think that Dan does the same exact sequence because he kind of remembers what Cochran did earlier. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have that one because to yeah, me it just I mean, like that's... he was just like, push, push, push. <laughs> no. Lever, lever, lever. But yeah, that's probably what he actually actually did, but I wanted to justify that stupid plot hole enough, so that's the way I did it. Now that, like, everybody in the lab is distracted by, like, all the computers firing up and the signal playing on all the TVs, Ellie and Chalice sneak up to the rafters above this lab facility, and then he dumps the fucking box of all the little tags onto the workers in the main lab area, and while all this chaos is going on below, all these tags, like, rain down over the entire area as the signal is triggering them and they all start firing and zapping like all the androids and deactivating them and shooting holes and everything and blasting up the entire lab area and somehow all these hundreds of tags firing lasers every one of them manages to like strategically take out all the androids but 
Cochran is still alive. Like he's standing in the middle of all this chaos, but he is okay, right? Hey, he's he's a witch. Yeah. He's a he's a Gaelic witch. He had enough magic to deflect him as the witch. Well, and also too, they completely miss them in the rafters. Like yeah, true. they don't even come near them in the rafters either. Um something I did notice too is and you really see it again when they're up in the rafters and dumping the tags down, is the circle computers almost do look like a magic sigil or a magic circle themselves, but it's interesting that it is made up of computers. I don't know if that was done on purpose or not. Well, it is, yeah, because all those yeah. computers start to do this chain reaction thing where they all start yeah. glowing kind of in this weird pattern. So, yeah, I took it as the computers were set up in a magic sigil. Yeah. And it was like a really interesting juxtaposition of technology with magic. Yeah. So the Stonehenge pillar is also now like activated and it starts glowing and all these computers are like glowing in this weird pattern. And Cochrane's kind of staring at all this stuff that's happening around him, but he looks up and sees Chalice in the rafters and kind of gives him one last slow clap. golf clap and just like, hey, good trick, yo. You you trick the trickster. Got me. You, you got me. Yep. And then the fucking Stonehenge basically absorbs him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so the Stonehenge and the computers zap Cochran and he like turns fucking crystalline and then completely just vaporizes, which the novelization suggests that Cochran was maybe just transported to another dimension and not like killed necessarily. See, I, I like to think that Cochran was transported to another dimension yeah, as well. Yeah, but there's just like a weird, it's like a dummy of Cochran that's glowing and it has like this weird grin on its face as it's just suddenly like glowing to the point where it just vaporizes. Hey, he got all the magic he wanted. Yeah, so... Chalice and Ellie now flee the burning factory because everything's exploding, catching on fire. They get in the car, and as they're driving away, Chalice is like, oh, we gotta do something. We gotta tell somebody. We gotta stop that transmission at nine. Ellie fucking snaps and attacks Chalice and, like, forces the car off the road and they crash into a tree. This is a pretty good scare, too, because back up for a second, you can tell that something's gonna happen because ever since Dan met back up with Elliot and, like, got her off the gurney in that random room ellie has not said a word yeah. like she's just been following him around sneaking around with him and like running like him kind of almost even pulling her around and at first i thought it was kind of just oh she's sort of in shock but like the more that she was just in this weird daze and not saying a damn word i was like oh no wait something's up with with her i had kind of assumed either she had been like possessed or she was an android. Yeah. Chalice stumbles out of the car wreck and notices that Ellie's arm is fucking ripped off and like hanging onto the car door. And as he like goes around to the backside of the car, Ellie attacks him, missing an arm. And he notices now, oh shit, she's an android. Another jump scare. Yeah. There's like four Ellie jump scares in this scene. Yeah. So he grabs a tire iron from the trunk and literally knocks her fucking head off. And same thing, like robot yellow goo blood squirting out and you know okay everything's fine oh no shit her severed arm attacks me now Uh, okay everything's (laughs) fine Oh no, her headless body attacks me now. Oh shit. Yeah. Just all these jump scares in a row. It was literally like three different attacks. Once a headless body attack, I was like, all right, enough. Yeah. Like, we fucking get it. Either kill Dan or like let her just die. So he manages to run to the same exact fucking gas station from the beginning of the movie. This poor attendant. Yeah, acting just as frantic and crazy as Harry from the beginning of the movie. And the same attendant guy's there is like, hey, mister, you look familiar 
here. Wait, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, they're going to kill the children. Yeah. He's all frantic now. Chalice picks up the phone and starts frantically, like, calling the TV station and talking to the managers. Like, you got to turn off the signal. You got to, like, cancel the ad. They're going to kill everybody. Oh, my God. And he's watching the TV that's in the gas station. And they're, like, flipping through the channels. And one by one, the TV channels start to, like, go to the standby mode. And, you know, this one last channel is still playing the Silver Shamrock ad right as this group of kids wearing the masks all come into the gas station and Chalice is just screaming at the phone, you gotta stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! As the strobe of, like, the magic pumpkin is flashing on the TV. I liked how the attendant was just like, while he's in the screaming in the background on the phone, the attendant's like, oh, trick-or-treaters, here's some candy, kids. And then one of the kids, I think, in in a witch mask walks up to the TV and is just staring at it as Chalice does the final screaming, stop it, stop it. And I think on one point on the phone, they're talking about how there's three main channels that are airing it. And he, yeah. Because this is back in the day when there were only three channels. And that two out of the three, like, cut out the magic pumpkin flashing. But yeah, it ends with... Dan basically screaming in the phone, stop it, as the pumpkin's just flashing in this kid's face. Yep. Cut to credits. Yep. And apparently the original credits, instead of, like, cutting to the score, the original credits were just supposed to be, like, the screams of thousands of children dying across the country. Jesus! I kind of wish they kept that because that would have been fucking horrific. Well, and that's how the novelization ends is definitively like, nope, he did not make it. Like the movie kind of leaves it ambiguous as to whether or not he accomplished his mission. But the novelization definitely is just like, nope, thousands of children died screaming across the country. But even to me, I kind of took it as he fails to stop it because the movie ends with the pumpkin. Like it's been flashing for several seconds and then it's ending with him still screaming as it's flashing so i took it as like yeah that final station didn't cut off its feed yep that's it halloween 3 season of the witch such a good movie it's bonkers it has plot holes but it's legit has some pretty good scares in it it is a great movie to watch on halloween night yeah this movie even more so than murder party and night of the demons this movie felt more halloween to me for whatever reason this just felt much more of like the spirit of halloween to me yeah and this movie is definitely a fun one to watch with a group of people on halloween which is why we're specifically putting this episode out right now so if you need a suggestion put this shit on so good it's so good yeah so this is definitely like one of my strange cult favorites that i kind of discovered rediscovered rather along with most other people in the last couple of years and I fucking love it. This movie is trash garbage in the best way. See, to me, like, in terms of 80s horror, now I would say that the... And, you know, besides, like, The Shining, I think The Shining is kind of, like, in its own class. But when I think of, like, my personal quintessential 80s horror, I think of Scanners, I think of Videodrome, and now I'm thinking of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Those three movies, to me, kind of all go together in my own head in some weird way, I guess. Because there's, like, a bit of sci-fi and corporate douchebags and you know sinister corporations and all that stuff yeah and this movie like as far as you know real life fears are concerned the sinister corporation angle is definitely a real life thing you know like we literally live in a fucking time where we have companies like google and facebook that are like tracking and collecting everything that we fucking do and we've got these pharmaceutical companies that are up to no good it's a real life fear for sure if someone ever wanted to remake this movie instead of cochran you 
you could do Zuckerberg or like <laughs> Zuckerbot. Yeah, and uh, or archetype based off of Zuckerberg, and he's like Cochran in this movie. Yeah. So that's definitely a factor. Again, the whole idea, like we talked about in the Night of the Demons episode of tainted goods. You know, like these children's masks are like one of the last things that you would expect would be tampered with in any way, shape, or form. So the fact that like that's a catalyst for killing these kids is definitely like terrifying. I remember you on a previous episode mentioning like you always dig when institutions and people you think are there to protect us like kind of get turned on their head and like they're the things killing us. I think that just innocent concepts in general, the idea of a Halloween mask for a child, something a child is normally excited about and might even make them feel more brave than they are other times because they're the monster now. That kind of goes hand in hand with what if police or the church are the bad guys in this horror movie. But in this case, it's a concept. It's an innocent concept. Yeah, and this even more so than Night of Demons, because Night of Demons was just that kind of like throw away with the old man and the apples and razor blades. This whole movie is like about that idea of damaged goods being a gateway to a magical ritual to like resurrect <laughs> the balance in the world because Cochran doesn't like trick-or-treaters. Dot, like, dot, dot. Yeah. Dot, dot. Uh, But yeah, like all of that, definitely the fear, like you said, of gang stalking, being chased, of like having somebody watching you just like that paranoia is very palpable in this movie. Definitely the fear of, I don't know, family commitment, I guess. Because fucking Chalice, Chalice can't get his shit together to be a good dad. So yeah, I mean, this, this movie, like despite the goofiness of Stonehenge and ancient Irish magic and Halloween masks and bullshit. There's definitely, like, some real-life shit that this movie's dealing with that, you know, we can all relate to to varying degrees. And, and like, another kind of horrific idea is Chalice totally fails his kids because there is a moment, a window of opportunity where, like, him and Ellie could have just left the town as soon as they realized what was happening immediately and they wouldn't have been caught. Or if they were, they would have had to been chased down in in a car. Yeah. But if I was in this situation, I don't know if I would attempt to personally stop this. I would just try and get back to my own children children and family as quickly as fucking possible while calling the authorities on the way trying to tell them what's going on or at least do a I guess a fake 911 call to get them to at least go to the factory but I think I would be rushing back to my family as quickly as fucking possible to make sure my kids aren't wearing those masks yeah for sure so that's it boils and ghouls the season of spook is coming to an end we had a good season I definitely want to keep doing this every October where we kind of have a specific theme for the month but we are now moving on so what a good triplet of movies oh yeah and we're gonna have a similar theme next year so we're already kind of talking about ideas for that so the next couple of episodes are gonna be fun um we got some special guests on we're definitely kind of taking a little bit of a different direction with some of the next episodes and we definitely have some good shit in store so be sure to check us out on social media we are watch if you dare on facebook and twitter etc you can download our episodes from apple podcasts stitcher spotify google play Castbox. Castbox. yes that was the other yep. one now and of course our podbean page definitely check out my little brother jesse mansfield's stuff up on Bandcamp. um you can find him as 
Party Gator. Um, you can also check out his band, The Opossums, which they should have wrapped up their small tour of the Southeast at this point. Um, so definitely keep an eye out for more stuff from them. Thank you to those who have stuck around with us because we, unfortunately, we have, like probably a lot of other shows, we have seen a dip in our numbers since PodCoin closed down. Yeah, just from an exposure standpoint, more people were able to see us. So Yeah, but... We still have a good chunk of listeners. We had our, our last episode still had a decent amount of downloads. So thank you for sticking with us. Please, please, please try and spread the word and get other people on to our show. We would love to try and grow this as a total DIY project. And we'll hit those speed bumps on the way, like, you know, with PodCoin going down and all that. But we're here. We love it. We love doing this and we love sharing this with y'all. So please spread us around. Yep, yep. That's all we've got for this week. Derek, you want to take us out? Happy Halloween, Sally. Don't forget to wear your mask at 9 p.m. when the giveaway happens. Happy, happy Halloween, Sally week, Sally week. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm.